listening to Los Altos Institute's course on globalization and the rise of the anti-globalization movement, which ran in the summer of 2022. Uh, hopefully, over the previous 11 episodes, um, there's a sense of how recent the idea of anti-globalization is, and um, how the how it's really it's it's been twists and turns. Uh, it's not like the most intuitive things have happened, right? We have a uh, we generally don't imagine that globalization is either bad or resistible by political forces as some kind of programmatic ideology. While throughout history, of course, um, smaller um, entities have fought back when larger entities have tried to integrate them. But it's rare that those smaller entities believe that that's what other smaller entities should programmatically do. The fact that you resist being invaded doesn't necessarily mean you don't think people should be invaded. Uh, and when we think of uh, less coercive uh, forms of uh, global integration, we see um, a greater, uh, that's true to a greater extent. Um, it's, uh, it's a rare social movement, um, for instance, that rejects um, uh, what we might think of as uh, economic exchange that rejects trade. Um, that's that's a that's a more surprising interaction, one that we really don't start seeing until the second half of the nineteenth century. Uh, the um, uh, social movement that uh, Charles Dickens helped to spread around the world. Um, this idea that. Um, uh, the it, that it was not just um, the misrule by European empires, but the idea that their technologies, their animals, that there was something evil about them. We start seeing really your first uh, articulations of a programmatic anti-globalization. Um, is this idea of a programmatic or global opposition to European imperialism? And the first places we see that um, as sort of a larger connective ideology are in um, uh, are in rebellions uh, the Indian subcontinent in China and in uh, North America. Uh, the uh, uh, beginning in 1783 with Pontiac's rebellion, I guess, is, is the earliest of those that we see in Anglo-America. Um, the rebellion by uh, the uh, Zuni and Hopi against the Spanish in uh, 1680 also had traces of those impulses. Uh, they were the ones that that was the rebellion that um, killed the European animals and the Europeans, but not the horses. It's, uh, it's the rebellion. I, and I believe that's because the horses behaved like people and the people behaved like, um, um, uh, behaved like uh, uh, dogs, wolves. Uh, so um, they freed the horses. They figured the horses were being oppressed. And uh, I think the horses really, you know, uh, made good on that act of generosity. Uh, 
I think that uh, the ability of indigenous people to ward off European colonialism was in large measure based on their mastery of that technology. Uh, but one of the features of all of these movements, whether it's the Boxer Rebellion in China, whether it's the uh, Indian Mutiny, uh, whether it's the Ghost Dance or uh, Tecumseh's Rebellion, um, these movements tended to uh, rely on a um, religious revitalization figure. They took traditional religions and reframed them in a more Christian terms and in more apocalyptic terms. There still wasn't any kind, there, 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 there certainly was no secular anti-globalization, uh, really until we're late in the 19th century. And it's with the rise of public intellectuals like Mark Twain uh, that we can see this larger questioning of not just seeing a particular instance of imperial misrule or overreach, but in a programmatic opposition to what all of the European empires were doing. Now, of course, um, the peace movement Mark Twain was involved with uh, was not the main movement that was engaged in universally condemning uh, the old um, uh, the old capitalist empires. Uh, it's Marxists who offered the strongest critique of globalization and its impacts. And Lenin in 1903 offers a quantitative critique showing how empire is this dominant structure in the current iteration of capitalism. But uh, of course, Marxists did not offer anti-globalization. They offered altered globalization. They saw um, a future communist uh, politics uh, would of course be international. Their party's anthems in all the different countries were the international. They um, immediately created an international governing body in the 1850s when the movement was first getting going. So um, so anti-globalization truly is young intellectually. We can point to these little touchstones like the Tao Te Ching or Pope's Rebellion, things like that, these little blips in the historical past. But a thoroughgoing anti-globalization, uh, we don't really see until, um, uh, until the 20th century. And the social movements that get involved in anti-globalization work have not tended to be based on the same motivations. So anti-globalization, the uh, version that we saw between the 1990s and um, let's say about 10 years ago, uh, that movement was really driven by people whose financial and political choices had been seriously abridged by the investor rights deals uh, like NAFTA and uh, Maastricht and the retooling of 
the general agreement on tariffs and trade as the um, World Trade Organization and the adoption of structural adjustment by the World Bank and International Monetary Fund. Now, <clears throat> what's the implication of that? Well, who's going to be upset about those things? What, what, what's their class position going to be, right? Well, they tended to be people in the industries that were most severely impacted by investor rights. Um, and uh, the industries that um, were most impacted are industries where people work with their hands. Uh, industrial workers in the global north, agricultural workers in the global south, uh, these two key constituencies. But and uh, and certainly we see in the industrial sectors in uh, Argentina and Brazil some of the most dramatic transformations, and consequently the strongest anti-globalization uh, mobilization. Now, these deals from the beginning contained. Uh, migration pro uh, provisions that um, uh, nativists, uh, people, anti-immigrant activists could have become concerned about at any point. Uh, and we see that, um, uh, but uh, we don't see significant concern about that in North America. The U.S. Republican Party, the Reform Party of Canada, the, you know, hardline conservative parties um, are not particularly concerned about some minor migration provisions in NAFTA. Uh, <clears throat> it's a very different story in Europe. Uh, in Europe... <laughs> though the traditional conservative parties throw in with globalization, throw in with these measures, concern over migration is there from the very beginning. It's how Enoch Powell connects the current anti-globalization movement to the past one, because there are basically no connective figures in this narrative. But at least in Britain, there's always a rump within the Tory party that opposed uh, the migration provisions of Maastricht and one within um, uh, Labour that opposed the investor rights provisions. But it is worth noting that uh, this discomfort over cosmopolitanism that we associate with anti-globalization today um, is sudden, it's dramatic, especially, especially here. Uh, we, um, but it's also clear that there are more and more anxieties associated with cosmopolitanism. Uh, one of the things we're seeing right now is um, um, <clears throat> the public approval of different identity groups in society is overall falling. Uh, that's only been true for about four years. 
uh, it um, uh, that it's been like a generalized trend of just people don't like other people as much. Uh, and we see people formerly on the left who have become right-wing populists one of the common things that they that they, that changes in their politics is their opinion of globalist organizations um and their approval of migration uh those are the views that are most likely to shift when people do take the opportunity to change political affiliations but of course even those who believe themselves to be cosmopolitan and believe in cosmopolitanism as some sort of abstract value and identify with being urban and tolerant uh, have, of course, grown just as miserably intolerant of everybody else as, uh, as, uh, as their neighbors. Uh, so... There's this palpable sense then, when people are punching at globalization, they're punching at some condition in their lives. And I think the shift we've seen in the past 10 years, even within those who kept opposing globalization, and we're a fairly small group, but, I but people opposing globalization um, were driven by uh, largely material and class-based anxieties in the first phase of the anti-globalization movement. Um, and I wanna suggest that the second phase, people are also being driven by factors in their daily life, but they're not primarily being driven by the binary of am I employed or not? or a quantitative question of how am I being paid? Um, I think that people, uh, Bill Tillman has shown me, I've learned a lot from watching Bill Tillman beat me at politics for 30 years. And uh, I, uh, and one of the things that he does very effectively is what I think conservatives are doing with certain uh, around this issue. Um, he convinces you that the that the thing the, the the bad thing in the future, the thing you're voting against, is going to stop a thing that's already happening to you. If we just defeat, like if you just defeat proportional representation, first past the post will stop giving us minority governments. Right, that was essentially his argument the last uh, last time, uh, and, and there are various versions of it. I think that much anti-globalization um, is discomfort over the effects of cosmopolitanism stirred in with neoliberalism in society. But I don't. Um, so even if people are being paid okay their relationship with their manager is different. Their relationship with their coworkers is different. The obsession of big business with the Harvard School of Business's inclusion and diversity principles also created a chill in workplaces where people feel fearful 
of speaking outside their assigned identity group, having opinions about people who aren't in their assigned identity group, being critical of people who aren't in their assigned identity group. And one of the things that companies have very effectively done over the past 15 years is they've negotiated all these provisions into the contracts where most of the work unions do now is dealing with complaints by members against other members. Uh, that, uh, and often those, and often those complaints can be against people who are your equal or inferior, because what matters is the assigned identity group you're in. Um, you have the wrong, uh, and so I think the problem is that um, a lot of what's fueling this is people's experience of this new authoritarian cosmopolitanism in their communities. Uh, and it's one of the reasons they choose to express that concern through parties of the right that have often, that of course offer them a ready-made language for talking about this. Uh, where, you know, they're taking our jobs, um, you know, we're not equal at work, all of those old chestnuts that the right has been peddling to uh, the underbelly of America. Um, these things now seem reasonable. Now, I've talked to a lot of uh, people on the right about this, uh, you know, because I want to get into, into their heads. And I, so one of the questions I asked a number of my right wing friends is, did you turn against, um, you know, these, these trade deals, this, this globalization, did you turn against those things before or after your opinion on immigration changed? And uh, no, they, everybody was, was pretty honest that no, their their opinion about immigration changed, and then they thought about the EU in a different way. They thought about NAFTA, and you know, they they just they they started thinking about that in a different way. People don't react. I mean. As we've learned in the climate debate, people sure as shit don't react to a thing that's about to happen. It has to be happening before they react to it. And so I think that um, what we have here, um, I, I, I don't think the critics of anti-globalists are wrong. I do think that, under, uh, that underpinning this is actually a questioning of cosmopolitanism itself. It's like, we can't remember when cosmopolitan society worked for us. So why do we have it? Uh, in many cases, right, if you got rid of NAFTA, um, nothing would really change in terms of how cosmopolitan our cities are. Um, the migration reforms in NAFTA, um, they have some effect on the United States. Their effect on Canada is negligible. All the major migration reforms we have made to make our cities more cosmopolitan in the past 10 years are unattached to trade deals. One was a change in the rules for our permanent residency requirements uh, under Trudeau. And um, 
The uh, the other was uh, the change in our temporary foreign worker designations. So one of the other things that's really uh, that's really funny here is we see a fake debate in Canada. There there is no anti-globalization party. There is no anti-globalization leader. But Pierre Polyevre is able to hold on to most of those people simply by denouncing cosmopolitanism itself. Same with Maxime Bernier. Uh, but I think that um, we should ask that. We, we should ask that question. Um, because I don't think I... I, I do actually care what lots of working class people think, even if they're wrong, I'm not just going to dismiss what they say. Um, people are trying to tell us something about how their society is running. And cosmopolitanism is the face of that. Um, the cosmopolitan mask is the mask that neoliberalism wears. Because when things get worse, they want a whole list of minorities to blame for those things. And by making them the spokespeople for um, the latest round of eugenics and austerity, um, you know, this is, this is not a stupid move. Um, so I think there are reasons that cosmopolitanism is the mask. But we, I think, also do should get to ask, what if cosmopolitanism has broken down? What if it's not working anymore? Why would an ethos of how to run a city, an ethos of how to run a trading system, why would that break down after so many thousand years? Some people like the country, some people like the city. That's always been true. But, but what's happening here? And I think fundamentally, um, the, there's a, for a generation, people's experience of cosmopolitanism in the global north is um, the super rich of the world taking over their cities. Um, that we did actually, we changed, it turns out that Right, the con you know, who you invite in is a thing. I think Donald Trump was applauded by for opening that category of question. It was incredibly painful. And he did it, of course, in the most rude and disgusting and racist fashion. But honestly, Anytime people try to ask that question, they're called racists anyway, so I guess let's send that asshole to ask it. Um, but of course, you know, Trump's problem is, oh, they're drug dealers, they're the scum of the earth. No, my problem is, my problem is the rich. You know, bring, I want more drug dealers. You know, that is fine. You know, let's bring in the riffraff from all over the world. That's what immigration used to do. You used to leave town because you'd fucked up in town, right? Um, I mean, the great cities 
of the world were just as full of immigrants 100 years ago, more so. People were migrating faster 100 years ago. But the people who arrived shared a working class culture that they brought from all over the world. It was the, the, the world's working class was moving to the great cities. And so that's going to produce a different experience of a cosmopolitan world. Um, when Brian Mulroney said, well, you can do this, this, and this, and the point system applies, or you can get a check for a quarter mil right, to, right now, and uh, we'll waive the queue. Uh, and I, I think that, um, yeah, so I think people, I think people are developing racist assumptions in part because of diversity politics and in part because of, of um, the decision by the global north to just keep creaming off um, the wealthiest and most qualified people of the global south rather than educating our own population. And uh, that's um, and that's producing different migration politics. People now associate with immigrants the experience of having your, your town taken over by the super rich. And having your town taken over by the super rich is not fun. Uh, it produces a different kind of chafing long-term satisfaction, uh, dissatisfaction um, than the old fashioned street battles over uh, which uh, linguistic community uh, got to work in the factory and for how much. And, uh, and I, I think that, um, yeah, so, but people are so often the the immigrant they have a problem with is also not their coworker. And again, because I think neoliberal capitalism is very good at shielding itself, um, we overrepresent. Um, well, we've bothered to headhunt them, and so of course we often encounter people in the managerial class. And if there is one single uniting thing about things that cultural conservatives uh, do and say, and, and I mean, the beliefs hold that so much of right-wing political affiliation these days is about hating your manager more than the owner of the company. Uh, that yes, technically the owner is, is exploiting you, but the manager's fucking with you right now and he will be fucking with you again tomorrow. Uh, the managerial class, um, right. They, um, they wear people's, um, uh, people's low opinion of these things. It, um, and so I think we, um, uh, I, th but it's, it's also clear to me that, um, the way out of this was the way we took out last time, the decision that um, the Congress of Industrial Organizations and other groups made, which was this has to, this has to be about class. If we don't make this be about class, 
If this, we don't make this be about people's economic experiences, whatever our short-term gains for anti-globalization, it'll be at the price of continuing to stigmatize and continuing to malform cosmopolitan society itself. And uh, that's, um, uh, you know, the, 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 that's a high price. Uh, I know that for me, um, I am start, I'm finding myself developing not a conservative politics, but I notice that I have hit a threshold for my own not intellectual but emotional skepticism of the cosmopolitan project. Now it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't cause me to have bad reactions to people of color on the street. It doesn't do that at all. It doesn't make me resent immigrants. But because I think I'm a little more focused on what the big picture stuff is that's causing it, if I see people with pointy shoes and and trendy glasses, um, I cross the street. I I am scared of the managerial class, and they do distasteful things near me, things that aren't even like politically bad. They just disgust me, uh, and um, I. Yeah, so I realize I'm like emotionally ill-suited to live in my hometown until my level of vigilance goes down. But I think that that actual physical experience on the street made me realize it's like it would be very easy for somebody to not be looking for those fucking rectangular glasses and the pointy shoes and instead be looking for darker skin. That does not strike me as... Uh, a tough move. I think that because elite culture is moving away from ours so fast, it doesn't have the same gag reflex ours does, and it doesn't know anymore that that we have what we'll have that reflex to, and uh, and so we uh, so again that's something that it's very easy for people to say, oh, it's because we're losing our cultural values because of all the immigrants who are here, even though, of course, the immigrants are far more likely to actually be fighting for the values of Western civilization than uh, the people uh, blaming them. Uh, after all, they paid a high price to come here. They probably had a good reason. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think that it's one of the reasons we see the... Like, because everything is so different between the rural and urban worlds now, because they become so divided so fast, you have to take seriously anytime public opinion on something tracks the same in both worlds, because that's now more uncommon. But we do see, um, uh, but we do see that although it presents in the political system differently in the city than the country, um, people's skepticism of uh, trade deals, uh, migration, and the like, they're increasing across the board. Contact with the cosmopolitan present 
unlike all of the previous versions of cosmopolitanism, contact with it doesn't make it more popular. Normally, you just get sucked in, even if you don't want to become a city person. They just, cities are alive in this crazy way, and, and, and they pull people in, and people at least see the point. And uh, we, um, uh, we're, we're, we're seeing different reactions than that now. Uh, I, one of the, uh, I, I read the, I wrote this, uh, this piece a few years ago, uh, that about, um, uh, a conference of lobbyists, um, um, yeah, I think the internet is a factor. I think it, it might cause you to meet more needs without going to a city. I don't think it. I don't think it necessarily increases one's revulsion at being present in a city. Uh, it uh, anyway. This uh, this piece that I had read, um, or this 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 thing that I witnessed. I went to this conference of lobbyists. It was very poorly attended. Um, I appeared on a panel for free as a favor to the organizer of the conference, uh, and uh, I'm sure she really, really wishes she hadn't asked for that favor because because the panelists before me um, were so upsetting. Were just like it was uh, because you know the. Um, uh, that you will own nothing and you'll be happy viral thing from the World Economic Forum that caused so much of its problems, right? People love it because for one, they feel like that's capital telling it to them straight. That capital is telling you what it's really up to finally. And they like that. I don't think it's a particularly useful quote. I, I think... <laughs> Uh, I said, I think the World Economic Forum has slipped into utter irrelevance, which is how conservatives suddenly found the courage to criticize it. They sure had nothing bad to say about it when it was running our lives. So um, the uh, anyway, um, they talked about how their vision for Vancouver by 2050 was that, of course, we would have like a concrete, a series of concrete bridges connecting us to the island and to the Sunshine Coast, and um, and that uh, you know we would have um, uh, there would be at least at least fifteen million people living in Greater Vancouver, uh, all the way up to Hope. And the great thing was that like we would just have twenty four hour a day ride hailing all the time. There wouldn't even be public transit, you know, except of course the subway. And, uh, and, 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 the, and, you know, we'd have all these people here and we'd have the LNG terminal and we'd have the bitumen terminal and, uh, you know, we'd get this other pipeline through and, um, you know, there would be tankers as far as the eye could see. And the great thing is, you know, and, and so then there's, well, how do we deal with the affordability crisis? Well, this guy, and I just, this is the point, I just, I just fucking, I, I lost it. This, this guy goes, well, you know, they're doing, the, the construction industry has already turned the corner. They've already adapted. Um, when they bring the guys in, they build a temporary barracks on the site and then they dismantle it and they leave. Um, and uh, that way, people who work with their hands won't have to live here at all. Uh and, and, and not just like, and not just construction workers, but 
you could have like fly-in barracks for baristas. Um, you know, they could live in, you know, some town like Kamloops or Fort Mac, and you just like chopper them in uh, every two weeks. And, uh, you know, and they just work 16 hour shifts, and then they go home to the, the rural community where working class people live. And uh, yeah, and I thought like, and you guys are smiling. Like somehow this thing that like, if it looks like, like Blade Runner, is your idea of utopia. It's like, this is a, it's a, it's a you know, like you want to, us to live in a William Gibson novel? I thought that part was accidental. Uh, but I think that's the other thing that has contributed to um, this um, right anti-globalism. And that is, um, People on political right typically need to trust their politicians more and have processed the loss of trust in more upsetting ways. Um, generally, people of the right, the, 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 the strategy, let's see the rationality and the strategy. Um, they try to elect uncreative um incurious criminals now that that appears to be what they're doing like you know donald trump you know he's like a trust fund boy an amateur gangster like there aren't really that many famous amateur gangsters but surprisingly we have like doug ford and uh and uh donald trump well i think the the the, the decision um to uh to install transparently dishonest criminals um, there is a logic to it. First of all, it's effective expectation management. But uh, secondly, um, what they're doing is they're trying to increase transparency by making sure that what they're looking at is intelligible to them because they don't trust anyone to interpret it for them. Uh, so I, 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 think, I think it's a simplification move. And in looking at criticism of deals or documents, what you also see on the political right is an automatic distrust of any document one can't read as a layperson. Uh, it, um, people look for short, non-complex documents um, and pronounce that large complex documents are almost certainly concealing something terrible. Well, I think that is um, because these deals have so many moving parts, they're so unintelligible. I think that in a strange way, the concurrent anti-intellectualism and loss of trust going on in conservative culture is causing them to look around and go, well, well, is there anything I've agreed to and I didn't read the fine print? It was probably bad too. Uh, and I, that I think is, is um, and I'm not sure it's a wholly unreasonable thing in this day and age. I've experienced my own, you know, my level of trust in the authorities went down another quantum at, uh, you know, every few years. I wasn't expecting to hit this level though. Um, but what this also suggests is um, right-wing anti-globalism is not so much a vision as an expression of pain. Uh, 
it um, there's an identification, but I would say that um, it's only by dint of a small number of thinkers like uh, Bannon that um, right-wing anti-globalism even has a shape ideologically. Uh, I think that it, it barely meets those criteria, um, but I think until it um, exceeds those criteria in some meaningful way, um, it uh, could evaporate as quickly as it's appeared uh, for any number of strange reasons. Okay, questions, comments? Yeah, I, yeah, I would, I'd, uh, I'd, uh, I kind of like identify with what a lot what you're saying, right? Like the, like we're, it's more of a class struggle more than anything else than, than, uh, than rate. Well, there are racist elements. I'm not saying there isn't, but, but yeah, but uh, because you know, I think most people are fun. Like we come from a mixed background, most of us, right? And we know people from mixed backgrounds, so I I don't think the tendency to be racist is a driving force for for this. It's sort of a like you'd say, like there's this discomfort, and they're trying to find out what it is. But yeah, and it really um, I think that there is actually something very dark and cynical in. Um, the politics of representation we're seeing. I don't, I think yeah, that, it, uh, it, I, th I think that um, we are handing people of color jobs. They'll be the first ones to be assassinated for. Yeah. It just feels like, yeah, that, yeah. Like something feels off about it. And I, and it's, and in parts of that, I really agree with like help disadvantaged people gain reasonable access. Right. Like, but, but at the same time, there's something, I don't know. It just, it's hard to put my finger on it, but well, yeah. Laura? Oh, I was just saying, um, I mean, I'm, I was nodding because that pretty much nails why I was confused about my politics and question, because it's like, am I right wing? Have I turned right wing? Like I, there are some things that I agree with and it's not the anti-globalization views of the right, but it's that sense that the, the, the super rich in the managerial class are taking over our city. Yeah. And that's where I really notice it, especially as someone who works with my hands, you know? Mm -hmm. You're uh, I'm being priced out of this city. I, I look, But then I look at Kamloops, where I could easily move to, and I don't feel right about that either. <laughs> you know, there's something else going on there. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, like, sort of like anecdotally, like, I've been I'm talking to uh, two young people who moved to Canada just recently, and, uh, they're confused about the wages. Like they, they feel that the wages are competitive, but they're completely confused about the cost of the city. Like, 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 why is this place like, like they're just, they just think it's far overpriced for what it is. And they don't, they feel underpaid and what they would be getting paid is quite good. But uh, yeah, just sort of like this sort of, you know, managerial class who's trying to optimize their investment properties yeah that's what it feels like vancouver's turned into right like let's optimize everyone's investment properties so they can retire comfortably and you know the kids will pay the rents until they're in their 40s right and it's just like like you know what you're doing right <laughs> like like 
they'll be completely surprised when there's a revolt about this. Like, mm. like well, I think, I, I like people will be shocked. <laughs> like, well, when I, I watch people, um, you know, I find it very instructive on Twitter to go to some highly controversial post and see if it, it's being shared across the spectrum. It's really interesting, right? The 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 uh, the scenes of like really young children we put on puberty blockers it you know and you just see it's it's a totally different like they're sharing it as much as we are everybody's sharing the thing going you see what i mean and it's really interesting that they're that like the they're communities have become so divergent that this is like the greatest triumph of human rights they have seen that week like, oh my God, aren't we great now? Um, yeah, and and it's like, really strange, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's just kind of like, like, why was it okay before? Like, somehow we're being repressed before, were we? Like, I don't think we were. <laughs> no, you know? no, that's the other thing. Yeah, so people or, see the authoritarianism, but they'll also see the elite do something that just makes them gag. And they'll see the elite all celebrating it. And yeah, it will be I, all of the elite, right? They're like, no, somehow the oil men have retained like a, a more human gag reflex. Like, how the hell does that work? Yeah. And I just I don't understand the yeah, I don't know. I that's I think this goes back to me feeling sort of a certain disconnect to like you said, like I grew up here, but I have a hard time recognizing it. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. So and uh you know, and it's not because of the diversity, or I don't know, like, you know, like, like, it's just the the almighty dollar, we have to maximize home prices. That's the only worthwhile investment. And, you know, you got to stuff all your money into housing. And yeah, it's just, and then like you said, 15 million people from here to hope is the dream, like, and then we're going to chopper in people to work as baristas. And I've heard that comment before. Like, like, like to make these these city function, we're gonna have to chopper in low low wage workers. And I'm like, well, what? Like, what are you building? <laughs> like this fortress for wealthy people to hide out from the poor people? Is that what we're doing? Or yeah, yeah and in that way, I think community. Yeah, like you're trying to maintain that. Yeah, this certain type of community, which are all affluent. And we'll bring in the poor people as we need them. Like, that just sounds like what it is to me. Well, and what yeah. ultimately I, I feel like I want to say is this is a false cosmopolitanism that simply, like, it hadn't occurred to us that you could, you could produce a counterfeit cosmopolitan place. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think, like... I, I, I think that to be actually, to have the properties that cosmopolitanism normally produces, those of tolerance and liberty, um, it's clear that class diversity and the diversity and security across classes, um, that that matters, yeah. right? That at the core of Roman cosmopolitanism, it turns out the bread really did matter. Mm -hmm. 
that uh, that 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 was not window dressing. Yeah, and then part of me, as I'm talking to you guys, like I, you know, you start thinking, it, like part of me, <laughs> like I am, like I do, like cosmopolitan in a sense of like many different people coming together. But I just, I just feel like we're, I think it might be scapegoated at some point. You know what I mean? Like, oh, well, our our dysfunction was caused by cosmopolitanism. And it's like, well, not really. It, like, there's always been, like you've highlighted during the course, like there's always been different groups of people meeting in different valleys together, making things work, right? Yeah. And so, I haven't... I haven't heard the phrase cultural mosaic in a long time. It's not, it doesn't seem like that's being brought up as a, uh, a good thing anymore, you know? No, it, it really doesn't. They've, I mean, I think the people who advocated for that, us, you know, welfare state cosmopolitans, um, yeah, I think we don't use it because, um, um, yeah, the, the, the people, there are people who believe they are cosmopolitan and it involves this very strange set of values they share with one another and with this sort of significant faction of the global elite. But yeah, there isn't, there hasn't really been a language since, you know, we, since this white guilt replaced other stuff. Right, I mean, sure, feel guilty. There's lots to feel guilty about, but replacing public policy with guilt, uh, replacing money with guilt, um, that's certainly a problem. But I think the other reason that uh, we don't say mosaic was that it was constructed, it was, uh, right, it was an oppositional term. So they stopped saying melting pot in America, so we stopped saying mosaic in Canada because we were only saying it to contradict the Americans. Yeah. yeah. So once America, once the American American progressives decided multiculturalism was a value, I think uh, our mosaic terms days were numbered. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's really weird just trying to feel around this because you know you you want to find well, the, uh, I mean the thing is people are saying this right here polyever is saying exactly that like this thing is failing hmm. you know because of the culture of the progressives right that that is his argument and he um you know and, and he and bernier do want immigration numbers down uh i think that in a way the people who are prone to blame have already made that connection. They've chosen to make that blame and we have to offer an alternative story for why um, they're, uh, yeah, because I think they, they do just see that. They see politics as having become pretty corrupt and um, questions about how corrupt it was before are highly debatable. Um, but people see that um, and they're quick to associate that with cultural practices and money from the global south. And, you know, we've, uh, we've really fallen into that by, ma by making so many false and idealizing statements about our own society. 
one of the reasons we have low rates of corruption is we um, we formalized and legalized. It, it, it's that we're exactly as corrupt if you're an elite. Hmm. We're more corrupt. I would say you could buy more elite decisions if you're a member of the global elite in British Columbia than you could in Saudi Arabia. Hmm. Uh, but the problem is we've dealt regular people out of corruption. Um, nobody gets to take a bribe at work. Uh, yeah. Except for the privilege. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that like a lot of like corruption at the sort of the lower levels, we'll say is really about subsistence living, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you come into, so I, like, um, a place and you're dressed well and you go to the government agent they're going to ask for more money from you but if you come in and you're not very rich they'll just ask you the normal rate right and that's how that corruption works now we can like is it good or bad that's up to you but it's just like the corruption here is different I guess right like you said it's been built into the system and of course I can't be co corrupt on I'm the wealthy person. How could that be possible, right? So, yeah. So how much are you... And then now we have rent for $2,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment in Burnaby, and that's reasonable, right? And it's just like... Really? <laughs> like, who... Like, what type of income do you need to do or have to make a two... To get a one-bedroom apartment, an entry-level... Uh, you know, housing, right? So, yeah. So, it's, it, yeah. I guess I'm not, yeah. So, it's just sort of contrasting that with what you're saying. Uh. Yeah, I think that what, uh, yeah, what we've done is the, the, the very people who, um, you know, I mean, I, I think Ira Katz Nelson's book, City Trenches, I worked in politics for years and years and I studied politics and I read all the political news when I read Counts Nelson's City Trenches in 2006, it was a revelation. Uh, scales fell from my eyes. It completely changed how I thought about stuff. Can't recommend this book enough. One of the things that Counts Nelson says that totally upends, uh, you know, totally upended this part of my worldview, which was very much a progressive worldview, was there's nothing more frightening to uh, poor people than dealing with a government decision maker. Um, they can't bribe or influence in any way. Um, politics is transactional. And one of the effects of civil service reform is to present um, this arbitrary face of, of absolute state authority to people. So, so Katz Nelson studied Washington Heights in um, uh, Manhattan over a 160-year period and looked at all at how, how people did politics there. And in the old corrupt system with the ward bosses, um, even though often, you know, the, the bribes were extortionate, people felt they had a much higher level of control of their lives. Uh, because their, their interactions with the state were negotiated and transactional. And every election for one day, 
they had more power and they traded that power to get stuff they needed for their neighborhood. And it, um, uh, and this, yeah, and it produced a radically different social contract that, and this is one of the reasons Katz-Nelson argues that um, um, we've seen a new kind of poverty uh, that's arisen. It's that when poor people become unable to negotiate, it produces a new level of hopelessness. And so people living in housing projects create, constructed by the federal government, um, dealing with bureaucrats, um, yeah, at every phase, um, somebody, they are just begging. That That's their only interaction with the state is just, begging it to leave them alone or to do what it wants. But all these interactions are, are powerless and debasing. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, um, oh, yeah, and I think everybody's, everybody's feeling there are too many debasing interactions at this time in which we are powerless. Well, you know, it, it really does explain the the, the rise of um, Ford, you know, mm. and that was sort of how he positioned himself, uh, from what I understand of my mother-in-law, that you can negotiate with us, you know, like, he, yes. he said, like well, I will come and clean up your neighborhood. If, you know, it, he presented himself as, as uh, transparent and transactional in a weird way. I mean, I don't yes. know if that's Yes, absolutely. There's a um, uh, the year we did city trenches in the in the reading group, uh, we did uh, uh, a really interesting book that's partly about the rise of Rob Ford uh, <laughs> by okay. Mariana Valverde. Um, she's a, and it, the book was published before he ran for mayor or became world famous. So he's not very effectively anonymized in the book. He's just referred to as Councillor Chevy. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, no, Valverde makes, uh, makes that point. Valverde is a big opponent of uh, public consultation um, and how it wastes the time of ethnic minorities. Uh, it, uh, anyway, so yeah, that was her take. It's like, I don't like this guy, but I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I also think, I think his core vote was um i guess corvo was also a harbinger of something people say oh, it was incels or whatever i, I mean i i know when lots of incels vote for something and it didn't feel like that when rob ford was running but he uh um i think that for the people who stuck with him to the end it's like i too am drunken on drugs and i too wish to stop being hassled <laughs> Yeah, like he'd probably get a yeah a constituency that would identify with them, right? Yeah, I think that was twenty five percent of the city. I think yeah, people yeah, are yeah, really like, struggling there. Yeah, like if yeah, I don't think we're yeah. <laughs> Do you use drugs and alcohol? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> are you just trying to get through the fucking day and wish you'd catch a fucking break? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he, mm -hmm. no, and that was, that's the difference between him and his brother. His brother doesn't have the same human touch. Like his, uh, I mean, Rob Ford, like he's, he's so, like he's a terrible man, but he's he telegraphed so much vulnerability that um, like 
when he was doing the worst stuff, he looked just as vulnerable as when, you know, he, he was just sort of sad. And uh, I compared it to, I go, I feel like this election, what's happened is it's like an animal has got loose in a slaughterhouse and everyone's cheering for it. <laughs> it doesn't really matter whether you think the goat will run your city properly. You just have to cheer for it. Yeah, yeah. All right, on that cheery note, uh, okay. let's do our final episode on Wednesday. Thanks for sticking with it. All right. All right. <laughs>